This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, April 29th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Doug Blair. It is possible that Roe v. Wade will be overturned in June, sending abortion laws back to the states to decide. But what happens then? How much power will states have to determine their abortion laws? Today, Virginia Allen sits down with Sarah Parshall Perry, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, to discuss what we can expect if the Supreme Court decides to strike down Roe v. Wade. But before we get to Virginia's conversation with Sarah Parshall Perry, let's hit our top stories of the day. President Joe Biden is calling on Congress to pass supplemental funding to the tune of $33 billion to continue U.S. support for Ukraine via ABC News. We need this bill to support Ukraine in this fight for freedom. And our NATO allies, our EU partners, they're going to pay their fair share of the cost as well. But we have to do this. We have to do our part as well, leading the alliance. <clears throat> the cost of this fight uh, is not cheap. But caving to aggression is going to be more costly if we allow it to happen. We either back Ukrainian people as they defend their country, or we stand by as the Russians continue their atrocities and aggression in Ukraine. According to the White House, $20.4 billion will be for military and security assistance to Ukraine. $8.5 billion will be economic assistance. And $3 billion will be for humanitarian assistance. Student loan debt relief is back on the table. During the same press conference where Biden discussed Ukraine, the president also said he was considering taking executive action to remove student loan debt. Here's Biden via Bloomberg. I am considering dealing with some debt reduction. I am not considering $50,000 debt reduction, but I'm in the process of taking a hard look at whether or not there are going to, there will be additional debt forgiveness, and uh, I'll have an answer on that in the next couple of weeks. The statement comes on the heels of Democrats who, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York, are urging Biden to take action on student loans. Schumer has previously encouraged Biden to forgive up to $50,000 in student loans. At a House hearing Thursday, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas faced grilling from several Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee. Representative Tom McClintock, Republican of California, asked Mayorkas about Title 42, which was implemented by the Trump administration at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. The public health order means that many illegal immigrants are quickly deported. Title 42 is set to end in May. And McClintock brought up how that could affect activity at the border via C-SPAN. When you remove that, it's estimated that we're going to see as many as 18,000 illegal immigrants released into the interior every day. That's the same as admitting a new state of Alaska every 40 days. These numbers are simply staggering. And I'd like to know why you think this benefits Americans. Uh, Packing classrooms with non-English speaking students, flooding emergency rooms with illegals demanding care, making it harder to deport criminal illegal aliens, flooding the labor market with cheap foreign labor. How does this benefit Americans? Congressman, if I can explain how the legal um, system works uh, when encountering um, individuals at our southern border. No, no, first of all, that's not my question. My question is, how does this benefit Americans? Um, uh, Congressman. When an individual is encountered at the southern border, they are placed in immigration enforcement proceedings. Okay. And under so you, the law- ha- you don't have an answer for how any of this benefits America. 
Representative Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio and ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, pressed Mayorkas on whether he knew whether terrorists apprehended at the border had been allowed in the U.S. or not. Via C-SPAN. Secretary, have, have any of the 42 illegal migrants on the terrorist watch list or no-fly list encountered on our southwest border been released into the United States? Uh, ranking member Jordan, as I mentioned before, I will provide that data to you with respect to the disposition of each one. I do not know the answer to your question. The Secretary of Homeland Security, Security does not know the answer to the status of 42 individuals who came to our southern border illegally are on the no-fly list and the, uh, and the, no, uh, and the terrorist watch list. You do not, do not know if whether they are been released or not into the country. That's your testimony. Uh, ranking member uh, Jordan, as I've said before, I will provide you the data. I yield do not back to want the general. To That's amazing. Mr. Secretary, this is outrageous. Representative Chip Roy, Republican of Texas, asked Mayorkas about whether he had control of the border. Also via C-SPAN. The only plan that you offer, the plan you just offered, is to process aliens faster and encourage more to come. We know that to be true. I know it's true, you know it's true, cartels know it's true, and people around the world know it's true, and that's why people are coming. That is false. It's not false. Yes, it is. The entirety of your plan says that. The Secure Fence Act of 2006 says what? That the Secretary of Homeland Security shall take all actions the Secretary determines necessary to achieve and maintain operational control over the entire international land and maritime borders. Will you testify under oath right now? Do we have operational control, yes or no? Yes, we do. And we have we operational are, control of the borders. Yes, we do. And, Congressman, and we are working to... So what operational control defined? In this section, the term operational control means the prevention of all unlawful entries into the United States, including entries by terrorists, other unlawful aliens, instruments of terrorism, narcotics, and other contraband. Do you stand by in your testimony that we have operational control in light of this definition? And Congressman, I think the um, Secretary of Homeland Security would have said the same thing in 2020 and in it, 2019. No, the, the, well, the secretary would have at least had a basis for saying that we have some sort of control of the border. But the fact is, we currently have people flowing across the border, including dangerous narcotics and dangerous members of terrorists, which your own agency sent a letter to my office after eight months. We sent a letter saying there are 42 people on the terrorist watch list that are in the United States. You just said to Mr. Jordan, you don't even know where the hell they are. That, that's what you're saying is operational control, including entries by terrorists and unlawful aliens. It's not. It's not operational control. In March, Border Patrol apprehended 209,000 illegal immigrants, the highest number in over two decades. Mayorkas wasn't just grilled over his handling of the border. On Wednesday, the secretary announced the creation of a new disinformation governance board. Politico reported that the board will be headed by Nina Jankowicz, formerly a disinformation fellow at the Wilson Center, and will focus on fighting supposed misinformation. Mayorkas testified that the goal is to bring the resources of DHS together to address this threat, while a statement released by the Department of Homeland Security said, The spread of disinformation can affect border security, American safety during disasters, and public trust in our democratic institutions. The announcement of the board and Jenkowicz received pushback. Senator Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, tweeted, Rather than police our border— Homeland Security has decided to make policing American speech its top priority. They're creating a disinformation board. No, really. And take a look at the views of the leftist radical running it. He included images of Jankowicz disputing the veracity of the Hunter Biden laptop. Jankowicz says she was simply tweeting about the presidential debate, per Fox News. Now stay tuned for Virginia's conversation with Sarah Partial Perry as they discuss the fight for life at the state level. 
Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to politics and policy. Plus, we bring you an exclusive interview with a problematic lawmaker or conservative activist every second and fourth Tuesday of the month. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. And we are also problematic on social media, so be sure to follow us on Instagram. Americans across the country are waiting for the Supreme Court to rule on the Dobbs case, which could overturn Roe v. Wade. And really, on both sides of the aisle, what we're seeing is it seems like people do feel like Roe v. Wade will be overturned. But then, of course, the question is, what happens at the states? Yes. So joining us here today is Sarah Partial-Perry. She is a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thank Thanks you. For being Thanks here. for having me. All right. So I want to dive into this discussion at the state level. And I think the best way to do that is first to start with what we have recently seen played out in the state of Kentucky. We just saw that a federal judge temporarily blocked some pro-life legislation in the state of Kentucky. Interestingly enough, this is a Trump appointed judge. Right. Um, and these were laws that put a, a number of regulations in place to limit abortion access, including regulating medical abortions. Um, Sarah, this instance that we have seen played out in Kentucky, um, how how is this legislation in Kentucky different from the pro-life laws that we are increasingly seeing passed across other states? It's actually not very different. I think the most surprising element of this is the fact that it was indeed a Trump-appointed judge, and she here in this case decided to issue a temporary injunction. Now, I think that's critical for the listeners to know because it's really set to expire after two weeks. So this isn't a permanent blocking of the Kentucky law. In fact, it simply is giving Planned Parenthood and the abortion providers in that state an opportunity and enough time to get up to speed because HB3, the law issue is one of those laws that contains quite a number of restrictions, as you mentioned, not only disposal of fetal remains, but certain reporting requirements. And for these abortionists to sort of switch their method of doing business is going to take them a little bit of time. So she mentioned it was a good policy statement, uh, policy position, and she was actually doing this for the benefit of administration to give them enough time to make sure they're in compliance with the law. So it really wasn't as negative a law as um, those sort of individuals on the left have been presenting it to be. In fact, it is one of those particular uh, judicial decisions that we don't have an issue with, even though it was a temporary blocking of the law. Okay. So what happens next then? I mean, did did the judge make a mistake here? Do you think that this was correct action to take? And what happens when these two weeks are up? Well, when the two weeks are up, it will probably um, end up right back in her courtroom again. All of the abortionists in the state will have to be in compliance with the law because, again, the House and the Senate overrode the governor's veto in that state. So this is a lawfully enacted law. It will be on the books. And so she will make another decision 
determination as to whether or not these individual abortionists are in compliance with the law. So I think everyone here is sort of spinning their wheels a little bit, waiting for the Supreme Court's ultimate disposition of whether or not there is a constitutional right to abortion in the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health case. I see. So we've seen a ton of activity at the states. There are 17 states with pro-life laws that have been enacted, either previously existing laws or new laws that anticipate an overturning of Roe. Uh, And there are about 20 states that have themselves opened up access to abortion. California, among them, has presented an opportunity for abortion tourism. In other words, we will cover your travel costs to come and get an abortion. If we are hopeful, of course, that Roe versus Wade is overturned, that would send the primary authority on regulation of abortion back to the states. Because under the 10th Amendment, any individual right, any duty not enumerated specifically is relegated to the states. And one of those is generally considered to be medicine. So we're hopeful that these state legislatures will continue to do and continue to show the kind of fortitude that they showed uh, in Kentucky. That, for me, is an encouragement because it indicates that the elected representation that happens at the level closest to where these women have a need, whether they find themselves in sort of an unforeseen pregnancy or they find themselves up against that untenable choice of what to do afterwards whether they need um, sort of crisis uh, pregnancy planning services, whether they need adoption services, the individuals best suited to help with those decisions are the elected representatives right there at the state level. So Kentucky did the right thing. And in this instance, this particular judge is trying to make sure that those abortionists are actually up to speed on the law and in compliance with the law. It's a temporary policy, good policy decision um, that, quite frankly, she will be, I think, in the future, very strict in ruling on. And as we look at what's happening in other states, you mentioned that 17 states have moved forward with very pro-life legislation. What is um, is kind of the style of that legislation? Is it similar to what we've seen in Kentucky? Are those mainly heartbeat bills? They run the gamut. There have been a number of states that have copied the Texas SB8 model, and that's the civil enforcement mechanism that uh, allows private citizens like you and I, if we find out that a prohibited abortion has been uh, taking place, we can actually bring a civil suit for enforcement of that law, but it eliminates any government government enforcement. That has eliminated the opportunity for the courts really to get to the heart of the issue, which is why Texas's SB8 law has been three times before the Supreme Court begging them, you have to provide us permanent injunction, injunctive relief, and you have to overturn the law. But so far, not only have they refused to do that, other laws have actually taken a copycat model and have found that to be a very effective way of uh, restricting and even in some cases eliminating abortion altogether. Some other states have taken gestational age approaches, much like Mississippi's law that's actually at issue in the Dobbs case, where it is 15 weeks uh, and after that the abortion is prohibited. Some have included fetal dignity laws, and those are laws that are very precise on the disposition of fetal remains, and they make sure that um, fetuses are treated with the humanity that is due them as unborn children. 
So they have a variety of sort of effects to them, but I'm seeing increasing boldness at the state level Mm -hmm. from these legislatures who realize in very short order, these important decisions could be coming back to them permanently. And if that's the case, they're going to have to be ready. Yeah. You know, I recently stumbled upon an Atlantic article that uh, the headline reads, there's no knowing what will happen when Roe falls. And we're, we're talking about that right now. Yeah. What What is the reality of what will happen? Um, so I want to dive into that a little bit deeper. But first, big picture, Sarah, in your professional legal opinion, will we see Roe fall? Well, I think we can take a couple of hints from oral arguments. And, you know, I tell people it's always dangerous to prognosticate, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I do think, based on what we heard from at least five of the justices, they are keen to send abortion back to the states. The one that concerns me the most is Chief Justice John Roberts, who has voted with the liberals as often as he has voted with the conservatives. And he seems to want to take a middle-of-the-road approach. In other words, not just keep Roe or not just overturn Roe, but find a way somehow to keep both the Mississippi statute and to keep uh, Roe versus Wade as well. Now, it doesn't seem to me, based on what the specific attorneys were requesting, which is, in other words, throw Roe into the trash can or keep it and make sure that we all understand it's good law. None of them seemed to be fond of that particular perspective, saying abortion jurisprudence is a mess in this country. It always has been. Justice Scalia said this never should have gone before the courts. This was always an issue for the states. But he is the one who I think might try to persuade a middle-of-the-road approach which I think lacks a sort of um, legal and moral conscience and fortitude, unfortunately. We know where the liberal bloc will come down. And uh, Sotomayor said specifically, people have relied on this for 50 years. But Kavanaugh retorted with, well, yes, people also relied on Plessy versus Ferguson, thinking separate but equal was constitutional. And we overruled that in Brown versus Board of Education. So some very big cases Mm -hmm. in American case law have been the result of overturning prior bad precedents. There is every reason to overturn Roe. The question is whether or not I believe Chief Justice Roberts has the courage to do it. Hmm. So let's say it is overturned. It goes back to the states. Then is the next decade just going to be full of lawsuits at the state level with these various pro-life, pro-abortion cases getting debated. I think they absolutely will see an uptick in litigation. But in preparation for that, that's why we've seen so much activity at the state level. In fact, there's been an increase up to 400 attempted regulations or past regulations just in this past calendar year alone. So we're seeing a lot of scurrying activity on both sides, not just on the pro-life side, but on the pro-abortion side as well. And what they'll need to do is make sure that it is consistent with the constitutional authority of states. In other words, can states pass laws related to medicine and health care? The answer is yes. And then we'll also see them make claims based on whether or not their own state constitutions provide or restrict a right to abortion. That federal um, right to abortion, that alleged 
allegedly appears in the Constitution if Roe goes will no longer be at issue because the court will have said, no, the Constitution doesn't provide for this right. So we may see legislation both at the state level and at the federal level. At the federal level, the um, the allies of ours on Capitol Hill can pass legislation if they use particular enumerated powers. For example, the Commerce Clause. So we know that we'll see an increase in the FDA's approval and regulations of chemical abortions, of abortifacients, because that seems to be, by all accounts, the next wave on a great deal of this, that if it's restricted in the states, these women will be using mail-order services or telehealth to be able to access abortifacients and still accomplish what we're hoping doesn't get accomplished at all. This administration in particular loves to use the regulatory state. It loves the administrative state. It loves to use federal agencies to accomplish its goals. I have no doubt that the FDA will become very active in making sure abortifacients are rapidly approved and they are sent over state lines to these women. So that, I anticipate, is sort of the next legal frontier we'll have to grapple with. So then you think states will be trying to pass laws to prevent that from happening, pro-life yes, states, that is. absolutely. And okay. that sets up a very interesting question that we're actually investigating right now. With the federal preemption doctrine, as a general rule, federal laws trump state rules. But when it's an agency regulation, does that have the same effect as applied to the states over a, a uh, legally passed and enforceable law. We don't yet know. Mm -hmm. What's the power of a federal regulation over a state's uh, opposite law? And that's something we're currently investigating and researching right yeah. now. As you're talking, I'm thinking, wow, so Roe v. Wade, if it is overturned, that's like just scratching the surface. Yes. And it sounds like we have a very, very long road ahead. Yes. A, a lot of questions, a lot of unknowns, and a lot of states having to grapple with where they stand on this issue. Yeah. And there are 2,700 crisis pregnancy centers in the United States. That is three times as many abortion clinics. So the resources are there to help support these women when they find themselves in this untenable situation. And between the courage of state legislatures and the the opportunity to use charitable services to support these women, I think it really pretends a, a, an amendous shift in where we go as a country and we can stand in the gap as we've always wanted to do, but might be able to do more conclusively if mm -hmm. Roe versus Wade goes. Is there a way to stand for life that life can be furthered in a state like California, where you mentioned that they have already said, please come here and have your abortion here if Roe v. Wade is overturned? How do we further life there? You you know, I think that's a very, very good question. And that's why I encourage everybody to exercise their civic duty and vote. It is truly up to these state houses to make sure that the voices of the individuals who elect them are represented um, in their House and in their Senate. That would be the only backstop against someone like Gavin Newsom, who is already committed to using a Texas SB8 style law to prevent certain handguns gun use in the state. And this is where, of course, you get to the issue of can a private individual prevent you from practicing
recognizing a constitutional right. We anticipated he would take that approach after the Supreme Court refused to stop SB 8. So in a state like California, it will be easier to get an abortion unless people stand up and they elect not only a governor, but uh, representatives and senators who are willing to stand for life. It will require that kind of a sea change. Mm. Sarah Partial Perry, a senior legal fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And please leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And please encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back with you all on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.